guys, if you've got your Bibles, take them out. Turn to the book of Nehemiah. If you have no idea that Nehemiah was even in the Bible, then turn to the book of Psalms and make a couple left-hand turns and you will be there. Well, gang, if you brought your Bibles, go ahead and get them out and turn to the book of Nehemiah. I love this book, this book of Nehemiah. Man, that is a, quite a group going out there with the kids. We are blessed. You guys are obedient when the first one of the first commandments that uh, the Word of God has to be fruitful and multiply, so you guys have done that. And uh, so we are blessed with a, according to the national average, we are blessed way, way, way beyond the national average with kids. <clears throat> Here's one of the reasons I love the book of Nehemiah. It's my third time as a pastor actually going through this book. And one of the reasons I love it is because you've got a ragtag group of people. You got ordin- <laughs> Not that I'm saying you're ragtag necessarily, but you've got an ordinary group of people that accomplishes something that bigger groups and, and uh, groups that thought more of themselves, perhaps even more gifted groups, couldn't get done for 141 years. Nothing worked. Just couldn't get this done. It was an important job to build the wall around the city of Jerusalem. Otherwise, they would be undefended. If they're undefended, they can't worship. They can't be a light. They can't be a city on a hill, a light to the nations. And they can't be the people that God called them to be. Nothing works if you can't defend the truth, if you can't defend the city. And yet they had tried for 141 years. And then Nehemiah comes along. And you've got this book where a very, very small amount of people, relatively speaking, accomplish a great, big task I mean, if you just look at the job and you look at the people, nobody would have put them together and said, this can be done. In fact, people would have said, don't even do it. You'll embarrass yourselves. Uh, the people had been a ridicule. They'd been a laughing stock during that whole time, you know, because God's people are supposed to be leading the world. God's people are supposed to be a light. God's city, God's temple is supposed to be magnificent and beautiful. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. And it was anything but that. And it made me think about the things that God calls us to do. It made me think about since Christ come in Acts chapter 2 and the church and the day of Pentecost and the church is born, what are we supposed to be as believers? What is the church supposed to be? And we look at what the church is in America especially, and it's a little bit of a, of a laughingstock. It's a little bit of, of a ridicule. I mean, the world looks at us and it goes, you know, that's a powerful force. I mean, how come there's so many scandals in the church I mean, how come the church can't get things done? I mean, how come it seems to be so anemic and so powerless? And then you look at the Word of God, and, and again, here's what I love about the book of Nehemiah. You look at the Word of God, and you see small groups of people doing incredibly big things. So many cool things about God. One of the coolest things about Him is that He doesn't need us, but we get to partner up with Him. No matter how many times that I remind myself about that, it's still going to be incredible that he doesn't need us to accomplish anything. I mean, here you've got God created the universe, created the world, the universe, the star, everything we see in seven days. Do you think that, that God needed Nehemiah and his band of ragtag people to build the wall? We just put it in the app. Do you think he needed them? Do you think God's up there going, I created the universe, but this wall's tricky. I can't figure out. How, where do the stones go? This is just, no, he, I mean, he could have done it himself. But he loves to partner up with people. So what was it about that group? Smaller, probably less gifted, less talented. What was it about that group that got it done when the other groups couldn't? And I hope you get this because this is a launch team. I mean, we're not going to officially launch as a church. Our, our, our goal is till probably about Easter. We're going to build up a group where everybody works together, where every member's a minister. And so you've got to get this. And God, I want you to know this. Infuse this in, in the Singleton family many, many years ago. That Though we are just four we can do great things. 
If we have faith and we find out where God's moving, if we just join him because he loves to partner up with his people, we can do great things. We're just four people. So maybe that's the question that you all have to answer before you feel comfortable. You know, you look around and you go, wow, we're, we're starting out. This is a big thing. Pastor Rob, you have big ideas. Can we do this? No, we can't. But with God, we can. So maybe that's the question. I want you to look at something. Here's the question. What can you possibly do to make a difference? Look at this. In case you didn't notice that, that was me and my family down there after Katrina. About a month after it happened, I'd never seen anything like that. I remember going down there, we felt, wow, we're going to really be able to help out and do a lot. And then you see it. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, you feel very, very puny. All of a sudden, you feel very, very small. Until later, when we got back and we kept doing trips down there, uh, we found out that the people in New Orleans, the people in the most ravaged areas of Katrina said the churches, and when they say the church, they mean the church worldwide, the church universal, big C, did so much more than the government ever could do. You know who made a difference in rebuilding lives down there? The church, when it's functioning right, completely turned it upside down to 10, 100 times more and continues to do more to rebuild. Just ordinary people who see where God is working and turning lives around and just, and just, Join him in what he's doing. Just partner up. And that's what we're doing with Impact Church. Can I let you all in on a little secret? There are actually books written about the Bible. And this bothers me. Not that there's books written about the Bible, but there's books written about the Bible that are, that are titled The Secret. You know, or The Divine Secret, or Unlocking the Secrets of the Bible. And I think they miss the mark. Here's what I think happens. I think they overcomplicate something that God wanted to make so simple. The partnering up with him. Others sort of come at it from left field a little bit with titles like The Prayer of Jabez. Uh, and The Prayer of Jabez, if you've ever read, it's just like a little booklet. It's a little tiny little thing. I think even that, aside from being off the mark a little bit, even that overcomplicates it. Nehemiah, gang, he got it. Nehemiah got it. Nehemiah is not a tough book. It's unbelievably simple. I think many of you get it. I know many of you get it. The rest of you are starting to. Nehemiah, if you really boil it down, the more I read this book, the more I see that he was, he was concerned about one thing. Some of you are going to go, give us that one thing and we can leave, Pastor. That's a short sermon. Well, no, I've got to unpack it a little bit, but here's what it is. Here's what he's concerned about. He's concerned about the glory of God. Nehemiah was concerned about lifting high the name of Jesus. That, that, that's it. Some of you are going, I don't see Jesus in the Old Testament. It's the same God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three distinct personalities, one God, Trinity. <clears throat> In fact, there's verses that seem to give you a hint about that, like chapter 2, verse 17. It says, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, that they, we will no more be a reproach. And there's other verses like that. Chapter 1, verse 3 is kind of like that. Chapter 4, verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 9. And at first glance they're, 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 glance, they're all sort of talking about, we don't want people to make fun of us anymore. We don't want to be a reproach anymore. We don't want to be a, a laughing stock anymore. But, and you might look at that and go, well, that, that doesn't sound like they're lifting up God's name and, and it's God's glory. It sounds like they just don't want to be mocked at anymore. But that's not it. Here's a key that Nehemiah understood. He understood that the Jews, God's people, had a place, and they had a purpose, and they had a goal, and they had something that God called them to do. And all he's saying is we're being mocked because we're not in our place. We were called to do a certain thing. We were called to be a city on a hill. We were called to be a light to the nations. And we've never really done it. We've never been the people God called us to be. What if 
we were? What if we finally partnered up with God and did what he asked us to do? This is what grieved Nehemiah. He said, let's find our place. Let's partner up with God and let's just do this. A place of testimony, a place of being a witness to God's greatness. A place of lifting high the name of God so that all the nations would see and worship him too. And, and, it, and finally, a place of blessing. Now, here's a, here's a bummer. Here's what we don't get. We take that list and we go, tell me more about that last thing, Pastor Rob. A place of blessing. And I think this is why we miss it. Because especially in, in American evangelicalism, we're trying to find the blessing all the time. Right? Am I right on that? Or some we go, well, not this group. Those people out there. But no. We are. We're always looking for how can I be blessed? How can I, how can I figure out God? When, when we hear books like The Secret and all that, isn't that honestly what we're looking for? How can we manipulate God? How can we push the right God buttons? How can we rub the lamp? How can we get him to come out and grant our wish? That's what so much of Christianity is about. And meanwhile, we've got a Heavenly Father who says, man, I just want you to spend time with me. I just want you to partner up with me. We'll do great things, and I'll even bless you. As a result of. But meanwhile, you're just, you're treating me like a vending machine. You just want to get stuff from me and not really get to know me. But it could be so much better. What you want is garbage compared to what I want to give you. Nehemiah seemed to get that. So the people didn't really get that at first. That's why the wall wasn't rebuilt. Instead, they were in a place of ridicule. The Gentiles, therefore, around them, that's, Gentiles, by the way, is defined as everybody else. There's the Jews, and then everybody else is called Gentiles. And, and they actually had fun for over a century mocking their Jewish neighbors by pointing out the dilapidated condition of Jerusalem. After all, here, here's the verses I wanted to give you before. The Jews claimed that their capital city was, Psalm 48:2, high and lifted up, exalted, magnificent, so magnificent that the whole earth will see it and rejoice. Well, that's not exactly what it was at that point in time, right? It was, it was kind of a joke. I mean, if you love New Orleans, you wanted to go down there, and you went down there to celebrate and take a vacation or whatever. After Katrina, it's not exactly that, right? You don't go down there and go, look how much. It's different. It's not what it was famous for. They said that God loved the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob, Psalm 87, 2. Well, if God loved Jerusalem so much, so the people are saying, why were the walls in ruin? Why were the gates burned? Why was the holy city a reproach? Why didn't the Jews do something? So you can see why Nehemiah is grieved. I mean, because maybe if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you're going, I don't get why Nehemiah is so upset about this. It's not his fault. He didn't do it. I mean, these people aren't living up to it, so that's their problem. Let him continue to live his cushy life there in Babylon. Okay, and, and how does this relate to us, Pastor Rob? Nehemiah is fun and all, but how does it relate? Well, gang, for the most part, the world today ignores the church. That's what I see. They ignore it. If it does pay any attention to the church, it's usually to condemn or mock, kind of like what was going on in Nehemiah. If you're the people of God, unbelievers ask, why are there so many scandals all the time? Every time you look at the church, you look at the last decade in the Catholic church, you know, you just, all the things going on, the world just goes, what? I mean, that doesn't seem very powerful. If, and if God is so powerful, why is his church so weak? We're not in our place. We're not being the people God called us to be. And when I say we, I don't mean impact. I mean the church as a whole. But it could. And it doesn't take very many people to break off and just join with them and start doing it. And amazing things happen. Gang, did you know that the purpose of all ministry is the glory of God? Raise your hand if you knew that. Keep your hand up if you knew it before I said it. All right, that's good. That's a good, that's a good group. Some of you are trying to trick me in that a little bit there. Well, you would think that the purpose was different if you look at some churches. The glory of God, not the, ang 
aggrandizement of, of religious leaders or organizations. That's not what it's supposed to be. In fact, the words of Jesus um, really say in his high priestly prayer ought to be the motivating force, I think, for all Christian ministry. Here it is, and I love it in the King James. I have glorified thee. Here's, here's Jesus talking to his heavenly Father. I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. That's it. That should be our goal. That, that, that is Jesus' whole goal. I came here, Father, to do what you sent me to do. And my, and my life is complete. My work is complete. In fact, his last words on the cross, it is finished. It is accomplished. <clears throat> God has a special task for each of his children. Another very cool thing about ministry, another cool thing about Christianity, every one of us has a task, and he's got a task for you. And maybe you don't think it's that big a deal, but in the humble, faithful doing of that task, no matter how small you think it is, you give glory to the name of Jesus. You do. Just doing your humble task. As long as you're partnering with God and you're doing his thing and not your thing, you give glory to God. Now, of course, the rebuilding of the walls uh, and the setting of the gates in the book of Nehemiah also meant protection and security for the people. Jerusalem was surrounded by enemies, so they really couldn't worship. Uh, in fact, it seemed foolish for the residents to improve their property when nothing was safe from invasion and plunder. It seemed foolish for them to keep, keep making the temple nice when everybody was afraid to go there. And everybody was afraid to go worship. Even their homes weren't safe. So over the years, the citizens have become accustomed to their plight. I I'm amazed in America how low we'll go. It's like we're doing the, the spiritual, economical, emotional limbo. Have you noticed that? How low can we go? And what I see from Christians all the time, and here's an election coming up. What I see from Christians all the time is we seem to back up into a smaller and smaller box and go, as long as they're not affecting me, I'm happy in this box. Have you noticed that? And what are you going to do when they make the box smaller? I don't care. I can stand on one foot. I'm happy. As long as they're not affecting me, I'm happy in this little box. Well, how small does it have to get before you go, you know what? I don't think I want to live in this little box anymore. I think it's getting too small. I don't think this is where God wants me. Well, these people got comfortable, and like too many believers in the church today, they were content to live with a status quo, even though that's not their place. It's an unstoppable force is the place of the church. But they were content to live with the status quo. Then Nehemiah arrived on the scene and challenged them to rebuild the city to the glory of God for this purpose, because it's going to bring glory to God. Here's what Dwight L. Moody said, a great, great preacher. He said, a great many people have got a false idea about the church. They have got an idea that the church is a place to rest in to get into a nicely cushioned pew, except for us here today, or a metal chair, and contribute to the charities, listen to the minister, and do their share to keep the church out of bankruptcy. It's all they want. The idea of work for them, actual work in the church, never even enters their mind. Never even enters their mind. I would say that's true about a lot of churches. Well, no, that's not what church is all about, but it should be. Nehemiah came to change all that for God's people and God's city on a hill. Now, there are over 1,000 churches in Charlotte and the surrounding areas. Did you know that? Yes, Pastor, we knew that. You say it every week. But I don't know if you're listening. <clears throat> How's impact going to be any different? Well, I would say if we just get back on vision in that one thing, giving glory to God and God alone, we'd be different than about 90% of them. That's a good start. Get back on mission in lifting up the name of Jesus Christ, first and foremost. Now, we've got a vision to do that, but that needs to be the, the foundational cornerstone, Jesus Christ. I know one thing, and I hope by the end of even today, more of you will know it. I know that God called me to change all of that, the sort of anemic condition of the churches here, to be a light 
unto this city to mark this community and beyond. I know what he called me to do. I'm just hoping I get three or four of you to follow. That's what I'm hoping. <clears throat> if you're a Christ follower, I got good news. He called you to do the same thing. He did. Not just not an impact church thing. That's an every Christian thing for everybody. So by way of review, let me do this. If you haven't noticed by now, if you've been with us, it's about our fourth week. We've, uh, we've been following these words that start with P uh, in, in Nehemiah's great leadership. So let me give you a quick review of what they are. The first one was pause. When you hit a wall, you pause. That's kind of logical, right? Okay, we got some. Can I get one of you to run into a wall as fast as you can? Wow. I, see, that's what I knew. I, y'all, are, y'all are volunteering everybody else, but, you know, we could sacrifice one kid, couldn't we? Just do that. Just see the effect. I guarantee when they hit the wall, they will at least pause. You see that? That's kind of a wall causes you to go, listen, reevaluate. Uh, am I going the right way? You're going to pause. Next thing he did was immediately he prayed. Then he planned, then he prepared, and then there was power. Last week we talked about how there was power in together. Some of you are going, that's five weeks. You said there's only four. Well, the first one was in a house with like 20 people. But we did go over that. Today the word is places. Today the word is places. Today we'll see that Nehemiah discovered how to make sure the people embrace this truth, that everything works better when, I'm going to say this twice because you've got to get it, everything works better when everyone has a place and everyone is working in their place. I mean, he just knew. There's a couple things Nehemiah knew that are so basic, and everything just went awesome because he just internalized these truths. And that is that everything works better when everyone has a place and everyone's working in their place. Now, again, this is a launch team. We didn't do that today, did we? So we got to do it. At this point, we're not quite a church. We are a launch team. Some of you are saying that, you know, robotically. But do you know what? that mean you know the difference okay obviously we don't have a lot of the bells and whistles and we're going to accumulate these things as we go along but what that means is every single one of you that comes here and says you know what i feel the holy spirit i know that god's a part of this i want to be involved will be involved involved we're trying to develop a team and my hope and my goal is that before we even begin the two or three months before you head for a grand opening that we'll have about 400 men women and children that are just a launch team 100 percent volunteers they're all working now, the one-year-old, he's off the hook for a little while until can, we can figure out what he can do. But beyond that, everybody's working. So go into chapter 3, and let me read what was going on here. I may butcher some of these names, but I want you to pick up on some trends here. <clears throat> Verse 1, then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. And they consecrated it and set its doors, and they consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built and next to them, Zachor, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hazanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Mishalem, the son of Berachiah, son of, let me, let me get a moment here. <laughs> Meshesib, Meshesib, that guy, blah, 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 repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bena, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoits, the Tekoits repaired. But now get this. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. But their nobles, the high and mighty, the supposed leaders, would not stoop to serve the Lord. <clears throat> Gang, this is, you really can't make these names up. You notice how these are some tricky names. Merimoth, the Hekoys, or Hakois and, and Mishezabel, they're real people. Real people. Remember, this is basically Nehemiah's diary. That's what this book is. Guys don't have diaries, though, do they? We have journals. 
That's a lot more manly. Guys don't write diaries. That sounds feminine. But uh, this is basically his day-to-day. This is his journal of his life. And in this, he, he decides to list people, which most, most commentary uh, authors and, and even pastors that I looked at will we'll just skip right over this chapter like it's nothing. But here's why I want you to see that it's something. It's huge. There's a huge leadership principles in this chapter because ultimately the fact that Nehemiah wrote this, and I tell you it's his journal, isn't really the important part. The part that's important is that all Scripture is inspired of God and is useful for teaching and reproach and all that. First Timothy tells us this. So who really wrote this? That's not a rhetorical question. Who really wrote this? God, the Holy Spirit inspired me. This is God's word. And God chose to include the names of ordinary people in a list. In a list. And this is not a genealogy. We see other lists of people in the Bible, and it's a genealogy. And that's for the purpose of pointing to Christ and seeing the line he came down through. But here's another list, almost as tiring for some of you, some of us, I think, as a genealogy. We go, why in the world is this here? What a waste of time. So I even spared you the whole thing. Besides hearing me butcher the names, it might have been kind of painful. But honestly, if I read the whole chapter and I timed it, it might be three or four minutes. Three or four minutes if I just read the whole chapter. And I know, as I read it, some of you go, that's this is, uh, three or four minutes, I'm never going to get back. I mean, this is a long, long time. And that's true, but let's think about it another way. Let's think about this another way. It's really not that long of a list. It's really not that many people when you consider what they accomplished. When you consider what they accomplished, we're looking at a pretty close to a miracle. It's downright miraculous. And you know what it tells me? It tells me something's coming that you better write down. That we should never doubt that a small group of committed people can change the world. We should never doubt that a small group of people that are committed can change the world. Actually, that's all the Bible's about. Over and over and over again. The odds are horrible. I'm going to give you a few examples. Try and wake you up. Joseph and his highly dysfunctional brothers changed the world. Once they got it together, and Joseph always had it together, once his brothers got together for them, even what they meant for evil, God meant for good, they changed the world. Gideon and 300 men routed an army of more than 30,000 without even fighting. They were a marching band, basically. They blew trumpets and had little torches, and they won. And they won. Glory to God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm not a great math guy, but that looks like three. Three changed, stood against the most powerful man in the world at the time, King Nebuchadnezzar, and survived the fiery furnace, and it changed the national religion. Their stand. Some of you are not convinced. Here's another one. David and a ragtag group of 33 men changed a nation. Eleven disciples plus Paul, making it 12, changed the world and spread Christianity to every single corner of the globe. That's huge. 120 praying believers stuck in a room fasting and praying, waiting for the Holy Spirit, kicked off the church with 3,000 and one sermon in the day of Pentecost. How come it's always small groups of faithful people? And I'm telling you, it's always small groups. When Jesus got humongous groups together, guess what? He whittled it down all the time and grew it right. What a great time to launch a church. When you feed 5,000, which is just the men, if you include the, the women and children, it's probably more like 20,000, and you got one Chick-fil-A lunch, and you miraculously feed them all, so they're with you. They're eating out of the palm of your hand, no pun intended, but they're really following Jesus. He's got them right where he wants them, and he goes, you know what, I, I don't think they're, uh, these are not really followers. They're more like fans. So I'm going to say some tough things, but it is real. I'm going to see what it does. And it just cleaned house, didn't it? 
It really thinned the herd, didn't it? It got it down to 12 people. But those 12 people, I just showed you, they changed the world. 12 people changed the world. Wouldn't it be better to use 20,000? I would think, except he never does. Now, eventually it gets there. Eventually it gets there. But when the hearts are right and when we join him in what he's doing, then it gets there. It's funny. I'm getting so excited about this. I'm looking at you guys and going, why aren't they excited about that? <laughs> so relatively small groups of ordinary people willing to trust God for extraordinary things. That's the Bible. That's the Bible. Relatively small groups of people willing to trust God to do extraordinary things. So let me just take a poll. And, and please don't raise your hand because you the herd mentality. How many of you want to do great things for God? Is there, how many of you want to? Just about all of you. Want to do great things for God. How many of you, you think you want to, but you're nervous, but you're scared. You're more of a background person. That's okay. Anybody like that? All right, so I see a lot of people like that. We're going to get you out of the background, or we're going to get you to see that part of the background is doing great things for God. There's nothing great that happens if background people aren't moving and working. There's a lot of things going on right now. Everybody look back at Kendall sitting there at the computer, which he wouldn't want you to do. And Tom sitting back there. Guess what? He could shut my mic off at any moment and probably wants to. <laughs> and has before. But none of this happens. If people don't, you know, people were here as soon as the school opened for us before 8 o'clock this morning setting all this up. And it's going to get bigger and grow and more and more people are going to be doing that. Nothing big happens unless people join God and what he calls them to do faithfully. And then extraordinary things can happen through ordinary people. All right, everybody look to your left. I see some people looking to their right. Your other left. Look to your left. And then your right. What do you see? Superstars? <clears throat> I mean, don't look at Michelle because that would be a superstar, my wife. But, but if you, but other than, the rest of you are pretty ordinary. But the, <laughs> and me too. Ordinary people, right? I'm very, very fired up about what Impact Church can become and can do. It's, and it's not even a can-do thing. This is four weeks into it. I'm thinking is doing. Is doing. I've never seen hearts like this. I have never seen hearts like this. And, and in fact, when God speaks to my heart about what we can do, I get one verse, and, and my wife put it on my ring. It's printed on there, Ephesians 3.20. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. How much can God do through a small group of people? Well, if you sit there and close your eyes and imagine what he can do, this verse is saying he does more than that. So whatever you can dream of or imagine, he's going to do more than that. But for the people who were just normal folks, they showed up and worked hard and served God, and they made the best-selling book of all time. What did these stonemasons and workers do? They made the best-selling book of all time. The Bible came out, and they're like, I'm in it. I'm in the best-selling book. That's cool, right there in the concordance. There I am next to Zerubbabel. Right there next to Muhaha or whatever how you say this. So let's take a brief look at this often skipped over chapter of Nehemiah and get some great leadership principles out of this, okay? First of all, good leaders work both in the organization and on the organization. That's one of the first things. Somebody going, that sounds like the same thing. No, there's, there's one little word that's different in there, in and on. And good leaders work, I would say great leaders work both in the organization and on the organization. Larry Osmer is a pastor in Southern California suffering for Jesus there in San Diego, he wrote a great book on teamwork and unity, and he says there's some very important differences um, between the two, on and in the organization. In the organization, let's take a church as the example, for obvious reasons, it's, it's set up. 
working in it. What, what you saw today even, uh, children's accounting, greeting, music, all that, on the organization, <clears throat> why we exist, doctrine, pillars of our mission, to make an impact for Jesus, specifically marking the body, community, world, and even the future with his love. That's vision, uh, values, ministry direction, structure, things like that. That's more on the organization. But the launch phase is interesting. The launch phase of a church is really, really interesting. It's a stage that the book uh, doesn't really address. Larry Osborne's book doesn't really address, but guess who does address it? Nehemiah. When I look at what Nehemiah did, I think one of the reasons it worked is because he basically got a launch team together to do this wall. He didn't really get a, uh, you know, like we would normally do it, just get a bunch of people and sort of get the church going right away. He got a launch team together. And because of that, it stayed, it got built, and worship was stable for many, many years. <clears throat> I see a lot of similarities to Nehemiah's wall building project. There's a management guru guy, he's pretty good, Peter Singe. He wrote a number of interesting books on this subject. He paints a picture of what I'm talking about. I need you guys to get this, so I'm going to tell you what it is here. might be helpful in understanding what exactly Nehemiah is doing here. <clears throat> he said, if you were to take people in a large ship, picture a large ship, like a cruise ship. Got that in your mind? Let's say one of the carnival cruise lines that we've all heard about, and some of us had the misfortune of being on, like me. And you were to ask them, in regards to this ship, and I'm going to ask you guys, I don't want you to say it out loud, just think about this. In regards to this ship, who's the most important person in regards to the ship? Just think about it. Oh, you said it out loud. That's not thinking, that's saying. Just think. And I already heard you guys went exactly where I was luring you, right into the trap. I know what you're thinking. I mean, think, of course you're thinking captain, right? I think of the captain of it, but he brings up a good point. And I agree with him. I don't think the captain is the most important person. Seach says it's the boat builder. It's the boat builder. And wasn't that the case with the Titanic? You guys familiar with that story? Boat builder didn't build it equal to the mission for which it was going to be used. It was going to travel in, in northern waters. There were icebergs there. It wasn't built. Gonna, so it really doesn't matter how good that captain was. Maybe you think he was good if you've read about it. Maybe you think he was bad. It really doesn't matter. He could have been the best captain of all time. That ship wasn't going to make it. Not in those waters, not for that voyage, not on that mission. It wasn't going to make it. So it turns out the most important person is the one who built it. I think that's a good insight. Best captain in the world can't pilot a ship that won't float. <clears throat> so when we look at an organization, we tend to say, well, the leader's the one with the wheel in his hand up on the deck leading the charge. No, actually, that's the person working in the organization, most important people are the ones working on the organization. And I said people because then I think in a launch team, that's everybody in a launch team. It's how you build it right now that's going to determine whether this thing will float. It's how we build it in the next several months. It's going to determine how far this church goes. It's the DNA we set in this church now, right now in the early days. It's going to determine how far it goes. In the launch phase, it's everyone. So even a launch has a Nehemiah. But here's how it all could have gone south for Nehemiah. You could have a great leader, but if they have bad systems, bad facilities, unqualified personnel, bad policies, procedures, structures, the wrong budget, it doesn't matter how great of a leader they are, those kind of resources, it's going to sink. The thing is going to sink. How many of you grew up or, or, or are used to a small church? 
How many of you grew up in a, in a real, okay, quite a few of you, and you went to a real small church? That's a place where the pastor works in the church and not on it. Do you know the difference? So if you're in a real small church, and I'm going to get real delicate here, so let me tread lightly. Not. <clears throat> That's a church where you call or email or drop by any time we want, and, and the pastor's there because he's always literally in it. An issue is, is uh, uh, let's go with this. It's important that he's also working on it. I would say this is important for some of you guys, even in your personal life, and this is rhetorical. But if you're spiritually tired and you're spiritually burned out and you're frustrated, and maybe in this economy right now you're broke, and you're not doing so well health-wise, in our culture and in our church work, wouldn't you say that most people would say, the thing is you need to shift it into sixth gear. You need to take it up a notch. You need to run faster. You need to try a little harder. You just need to work harder. You're not doing enough. That's what we normally say as Americans. It's funny because I don't think that's where Nehemiah was. <clears throat> you might need to do just the opposite. You might need to pull back. Stop working in your life and start working on it. Does that make sense? Can you change your place of employment? Can you change your diet? Can you change your exercise? Can you change your schedule? Can you change your budget? Do you need to acquire new resources? Do you need to drop outstanding obligations that you can no longer meet or fulfill? Companies need to do this all the time. Individuals must do this as well. One of my favorite pastors in the world to listen to is Mark Driscoll, Mars Hill Church. Um, I have about 70 pastors on my iPad that's timing the service right now, working as a timer. Some of you are going, what number is that on, Pastor? Well, it's none of your business, but it's, it's time of service. I don't listen to like 70, but, but I, I love this guy. He's one of probably my top five. I think it's because he has the spiritual gift like me of sarcasm, and so I, I can relate to him. And uh, one of the indicators that God gives us when we reach those places where maybe we might need to shift back instead of shifting into sixth gear how do you know? How do you know if, if you've hit a wall and you need to do this? We're not going to like it, but pain. Pain is one of the indicators that God gives us. Physical pain, financial pain, spiritual, emotional pain. It's God's way of saying it's time to work on your life, not just in it. It's time to work on your life. Do you have a life plan? Are you lined up with me? Instead of just spinning your wheels and going faster and doing more stuff, what's your purpose? Are you even lined up with my purpose? Are you just doing your own thing? Watch this. One of the great things about Nehemiah, he doesn't assign himself to a portion of the wall and get so focused on that portion of the wall that he's unable to investigate the rest of what's going on. I don't know if you noticed this, but Nehemiah is not in this chapter. He's not in this. He does not give himself. He goes, here's the, south, here's the fish gate. I'm going to be right here. Don't worry so you can't accuse me of not. He, he's not in here. Instead, he sees all that's happening. He inspects all the different neighborhoods, their various little campuses that they're trying to get open and to serve the whole. He's got the whole thing going. He sees where the city is strongest, where it's weakest, and he forms his teams accordingly. And one thing you'll see here if you read through this, this forgotten chapter is he doesn't form isolated groups. There's no silo mentality in here at all. It's and next to them and next to them and next to them over and over again, the text says, the people working together, but not just together, in community. Now, guys, turn around, and you'll see these tables in the back, and Pete mentioned them there. They're not just to try and give us a little more decoration in a gym, 
because otherwise we, we've, we've failed. We're going to put a lot more decoration than that. But they're there for a purpose. It's to build community. It's because we're in the launch phase and every member's a minister. How many of you are aware that we were created and you are created in the image of God? How many of you are aware of that? Do you know that? And what do you think that means? It's funny, when you, when you ask young people what that means, they're going, I don't know, I'm not sure who looks like them. What is God, we're created in his image. Everybody, again, look at Kendall. Kendall's a sharp guy, he's back there. Do you think that means that God looks like that? That wouldn't be so bad, Kendall, come on, don't be down on yourself. Does that, I mean, if we're created in God's image, what does that mean? Does he look like that? I mean, it's funny, you talk to young people and they go, does God have arms and legs and, and hair and what color eyes does he have and all that? What does that mean we're created in God's image? Which one of us does he look like? Does he look like me? Is he tall like Nicole? Maybe fun-sized like Pete MacGyver? Wait a minute, those are not my words. That's Lisa MacGyver's words. That's what she says. I've heard her say it like three times. Pete is fun-sized. Her words, not mine. Moving on. (laughs) Gang, it doesn't mean any of that. It doesn't mean any of that. In his image doesn't refer to that. It refers to things like character and the ability to love in a depth that obviously animals don't have. I know your dog Fifi doesn't have this as much as you think they do. Uh, the, the ability to comprehend forever, the ability to comprehend eternity, that's what separate, that's created in his image. That separates us from the animals. And only the good, not the bad. The, the bad in us right now is the marred image because we sin. So none of that reflects his image. But the good things that we're capable of that are in us are reflective of the fact that we're created in his image. But it also refers to something else. It refers to community. God is community. Write this down. Genesis 1.26 is the first hint we get of this. Genesis 1.26, it said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. And how many of you have ever read that verse and thought that was odd? Like three of you. And some of you go, Well, no, it's just pretty straightforward, Pastor. You don't. Uh, and, And a young person thinks that too. Good. Well, that's incredibly odd. Almighty God is saying, we're about ready to create man, so let us create him in our image. I'm seeing a little bit of plural talk there, aren't you? And it's not angels because angels are completely different from us. So God Almighty is saying, let us create man because God is community. He's community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit have eternally existed. Three distinct personalities in one God. I can't explain that, but that's the way God has always been and will always be. So if we're created in his image, then guess what? We were created by community for community. So what happens if we're not living in community? We're shortchanging ourselves. We're not living the way God called us to live. Nehemiah seemed to get, this is another simple thing that Nehemiah seemed to get. He understood that we're made for community by community and that success would come only by joining people together according to the four strongest areas of community that were back then and that are still today. Not just joining them together, but joining them together in the strongest bonds we have. Now, you're gonna, I'm going to go over these real quickly, and then we're going to be done. And these four bonds, sadly, have all broken down over the last 2,500 years. <clears throat> the strongest bonds that we have. And oddly, uh, again, Nehemiah is not including himself in that. Again, he's not mentioned in this chapter. He's conspicuous by his absence. By the way, there's always a smart alec who will come up later and say, Pastor Rob, you're wrong. I just wanted to point out that Nehemiah is mentioned. Everybody look at verse 16 in the chapter. Because some of you are going to come up and you're going to say, Pastor Rob, you really need to read a little more, study a little deeper, because there he is right there. That's a different Nehemiah. 
That's not Nehemiah. Read how he's described. That is not the cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes. That's a different Nehemiah. So no, I'm not getting it wrong. He's not mentioned in this chapter. Just wanted to spare you the email. Well, why isn't he mentioned then? Two reasons. One, as we learned earlier, because he's working on the organization, not in it. He's working on the organization, but also because he had help. Every member of that community was a minister. They got that. They understood that everybody worked on the wall. He had help. People that were better than him at that. I don't know if a cupbearer is especially qualified to be a, a mason. Impact is a lot like what Nehemiah had. He had a tiger by the tail. Listen, impact might have started in a living room. <clears throat> in fact, it did. Not mine this time. It started in the MacGyver's living room. Uh, was with four people, but see, that size of four people lasted four minutes, and that's it. Then it was 50. We're about our fourth week here. Then 100, then 150, then 200, and so here's what could happen. Here's what needs to happen. We need to, as a church, decide immediately what kind of church we're going to be. We've got to decide right now because, gang, and I've said this over and over again, I see a few new faces that have joined us. This week. It's very tough to turn an oil tanker. I think somebody said it takes five miles five miles to turn an oil tanker around. How many of you jet ski? Got any jet skiers? What do you people do? We have one jet skier in here. Do you just come to, all right, we got two jet skiers here. You can turn a thing on a dime, right? I mean, you do donuts with it. Right now, we're, we're a little bit bigger than, we're like a speedboat, and we can turn it pretty fast, and we need to. We need to set the DNA and the values and everything right now, because it's what's going to last forever. It's very, very hard to turn an oil tanker. So we need to decide immediately what kind of church we're going to be, one that is equal to the great vision that God's given us, or one that isn't. Now, here's the four pillars that Nehemiah was talking about, the four groups. First one is family. Write it down. Back then, just as today, family has the greatest potential to bond us together. Now, the family's kind of broken down in our society, but it still has the greatest potential to, to bond us together. A lot of people will say, where the family goes, so goes the nation, and I believe that. Where the family goes, so goes the nation. <clears throat> However, unlike back then, when the value and definition of family gets clouded and cheapened, its power diminishes. The family was the strongest unit there was back then. When do you think the strengthening of a family, if you want to have a strong family, when do you think that begins? I love these smaller groups because I can just walk out here and tap you on the shoulder and ask you. What, what, I mean, if you want to have a strong, no, no, I'm never coming back. I won't tap you. If you want to have a strong family, when do you, th when do you think you ought to get started? When do you think? That begins. Raise your hand if you're married. Keep your hand up if you've been married 30 years. All right, young church. I went. I shot too high. All right, we got one. How about 20 years? <clears throat> okay. How about three years? Anybody? All right, so we got some young ones. This is mainly for you. When do you think a great marriage, a great family, a strong family is going to begin? I just gave it away. The day you get married. Actually, probably as you're engaged and getting to know each other and counseling, are we going to center our marriage and our family around Jesus Christ or not? Because 20 years later, your kids are off to college and you're wondering how this got to be such a mess, it's really hard to get started then, isn't it? It's really hard to get started then. So the strengthening of families back then started day one. Day one in marriage. Then it keeps on being strengthened by raising kids God's way. None of it just happens because we believe in God, baseball, apple pie, and Chevrolet. It doesn't happen just because of that. It happens on purpose. 
It happens because you center your life around Jesus and let your kids be a part of that at an earliest age. That's why you saw on that video, in case you didn't pick it up, and, and Katrina, that was us. The little blonde-haired boy, that was Nathan. The little tiny girl by, by uh, my wife, that was Juliana. That was years and years ago. And people even said, why would you? And we've, we brought them to Mexico to minister to the Mayans. I brought Nathan to Haiti when they were little because we do this together. We do ministry together as a family, trying to build Christ in at the center of your life. Let kids be a part of it. Let them see that your marriage is important as they grow up, as toddlers at the earliest stage. <clears throat> Otherwise, you're going to see your kids as adults who have no interest in God, no real care for others. You'll be wondering why, but it all goes back to what their childhood was like. Could end up like this. So, uh, Mom, Dad, I was hoping that you could help me to remember my childhood a little more clearly. I feel a draft. Let's change tables. Get out of here. We have a booth. Frank, I'm cold. Order a hot dish. Why can't we sit over there? That's not a booth. So who says we have to sit in a booth? I didn't take the subway all the way to New York to sit at a table like that. No, I didn't take the subway to be in a drafty restaurant. Now, George, what do you want to know about your childhood? Actually, I think I'm pretty clear on it. <laughs> Where's that breeze coming from? You don't want to end up like that, I'm pretty sure. <clears throat> well, we also took our kids to minister to all the different mission trips that we went on when they, were, when they were young enough to just travel, five, six years old. So that's the first thing, the family union. The second thing is the church. second thing is the church. It's the most, you know, one of the most powerful bonding units, bonding teams you could be in. Well, gang, these were of people who worshiped the one true God. One God, three distinct personalities, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Though they would not have a clear handle on the Trinity, and though the word Trinity is not in the Bible, they had a concept of it nonetheless. And some of you may not know this, but the God that they were worshiping, the God that appeared to Moses, and the God that's often over and over again, the God that wrestled with Jacob, that's... Who do you think that is? It's called a theophany, a Christology. Who do you think that is? That's Jesus. Some of you are going, are you sure, Pastor Al? Because, ah, ooh, that's weird, isn't it? He was back then. He's, yeah, it was Jesus who wrestled with Jacob. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. So they were worshiping and participating in worshiping the triune God, even though they didn't know it. Let us create man in our image. The very nature of God is community. <clears throat> the church functions best when everybody's a minister and everybody's doing life together. So one of the, when we finish today, I'm going to have you all go back as they launched into these booths and to be able to get involved. If God's calling you to be a part of this thing, there's only one booth back there that everybody needs to go to, and that's this one over here where Lisa's standing there. She's the one that said fun size. It wasn't me. It was Lisa. And she's at the Impact Life Groups hospitality booth, the, the, the right-hand side of that, the Impact Life Groups part. That's for everybody. Because you are made to be in community. So everybody should either sign up to host one or be in one or teach one. Mandatory for, our, for us to be strong. Now here's the next one. I'm not going to be able to relate to this at all, but I've got to throw it in because it's powerful then. Neighbors. Neighbors. <clears throat> After the family, this would have been the closest relationship, your neighbors, those who lived right next door to you. You know why? Because these people didn't buy that house because it was a low country French Normandy back then. They didn't buy that house because it's an English tutor. They didn't buy the house because they loved Pulte homes and they were throwing in free granite tops and all that stuff. They bought that house, or they didn't buy it at all. They built it. 
with each other. Families built the house together. Neighbors built the house together. And the people closest to you were the people closest to you. And we can't relate to this at all. I'm trying to think of something like this today, and it's almost impossible. I guess the Amish. That's about all that I can think of. Or, or we can go back to the 1950s or 60s. And the problem is, back then, the front porch was huge. People would they'd come home, and you didn't have these attached garages. They were detached. So you'd get out of your car, and God forbid you'd see people. You get out of your car and you'd have to walk and see people and people would fellowship in the front porch and neighbors knew each other and they did life together. Now, look at what we're doing. Look at what we're doing. Now we build garages attached. Now we have clickers that open our garage and they open our garage door. We can slip into the house and go in the secret door that goes into the house and thank goodness I never had to see my neighbor. I've lived here 10 years. I've never seen him. I'm not sure I even have neighbors. That seems to be the goal now. So we can't really relate to this. <clears throat> So the reason we can see a passage like this and it means nothing to us is because our lives are nothing like this today. Nothing like this. But it doesn't change it. It doesn't change it. It's still one of the most powerful forms of community. That's why I'm going to encourage us and try to put it in our DNA to have block parties and get to know our neighbors, to sort of force ourselves out of dysfunctional patterns we've gotten into, like relating uh, to each other primarily through social media rather than face-to-face. It's amazing the things that we've come up with that are supposed to draw us together today. Facebooking each other. Facebooking has become a verb. Why don't you Facebook them? That's a, that's a verb. And, you know, communicating that. Why don't you send them a tweet? Why don't you make sure you're linked in to them? And yet we don't know how to communicate face-to-face anymore. <clears throat> and the final thing is craftsmen. The next tight-knit group would be craftsmen. Again, totally different culture. Everybody didn't catch the uh, school bus and get herded into a classroom like we are right now uh, and learn sort of generic stuff back then. Instead, young men especially, and and ladies in in the house, young ladies, but young men would apprentice with adults and learn a trade. You know who did this? Jesus did this. Really? What was he? He was a carpenter. He was a carpenter. 30 years of his life is spent ministering as a craftsman. As a carpenter, we don't know that much about his life, but he chose to spend 30 years doing that. It's got to be somewhat important before his three-year ministry that changed the world. So he learned to trade. He would have had a close relationship to other carpenters in his community, closer than those who are craftsmen and other skills. Trade jacks and masters, people who can do a whole lot of everything and those who are specialists. So, all right, you got families, the church, neighbors, and craftsmen. <clears throat> but all of them, just like you and me, ordinary people, rallied together around a big vision and infused with even bigger faith. I've said this three times now. I don't know if you got it. Let me say it again. Never doubt that a small group of ordinary people committed. Ordinary people can change the planet. Never doubt that. Because the more I read the Bible, the more familiar I get with God's Word, it seems like that's all He's doing. Does God get more glory if a massive crowd comes together to do something with massive finances and, and great leadership and incredible talents, talents and, and rock star mentality gets together to do something? Or does he get more talent when people who are ordinary, a little bit like us, quirky, maybe have, you know, maybe not stand out, to, maybe no rock stars? What, what, what gives them more glory? Well, the second scenario. And how did we start this whole thing off with Nehemiah? What did we say? Nehemiah seemed to get one thing. He said, we're going to go rebuild that wall. Why? Because that's our place. 
And if we find our place, even as a small group, ragtag, it'll bring glory to God, and that's all God wants, so he will bless it and he will be behind it. Listen, God's work done, God's work done God's way and God's time will never lack for God's resources. Never. It won't. I don't think Impact Church is going to lack for God's resources. These ordinary people listen to the eternal word of God. They made the Bible. They made the Bible. They're listed here. <clears throat> Another thing that lasts forever is the bride of Christ. You could be a part of that today. Take a look. Three men to represent the culmination of a dream and the beginning of a new concept of reality. Father, I pray that we wouldn't see ourselves as more than what we are, Lord, but I pray that we wouldn't see ourselves as less than who we are as well. Because, Father, who we are in you is sons and daughters of the living King. And that means if we partner up with you, we can do anything, anything you call us to do. I believe that, Lord. God, help us to believe that because your church, Father, on this planet, for the most part, is not doing what you called your church to do. It's supposed to be an unstoppable force. It's supposed to change the trajectory of where people are going. It's supposed to take hellbounders and point them to you and grow your family and bring glory to your name. And it's happening in pockets, but it's not happening everywhere, Lord. In short, it's not making an impact, Father. And Lord, I want this, this church, when you're ready and, and we build this up and we get it and the DNA, that your DNA is laid, I want it to make an impact because you want it to make an impact, Lord. I want it to make such a mark that if we were ever removed, the community, the world would miss us, would greatly long for it. God, we just want to discover what you're doing and join you there and partner up with your mission because we know that if, if it's you that's calling us, because it's you that's calling us to do your work and your time, your way, we're not going to lack for resources, Lord. We love you and we want to lift high the name of your son, Jesus. For it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, we're going to close out different, um, obviously, than normal weeks. And I want you guys to look around and just see these different stations that we have here. These are sort of the backbone, the mandatory things that we got to have, um, not just in a church, obviously, but in a launch team. Again, one more time, I'll go over it. 
Um, this is the one I want everybody. If you feel like God's calling you here, this is, he's calling you to work on the wall. Find your place on the wall, and let's do this together. My goal before we target a date, which I hope is going to be Easter for a grand opening for this church, is that we would have about 400 men, women, and children. So we've got a little over 200 men, women, and children right now, so we're going to roughly double in the months ahead. And that's the kind of strength in a launch team I think we need before we look to the grand opening. So be praying about that. Be praying about who you can invite along this journey with us. Everybody needs to be involved. Hopefully I made that real clear. You were created by community for community, so everybody needs to be at least a part of an impact life group. The other sections here is we've already got uh, high school students meeting together and middle school. They meet on Wednesdays. Where's Kitty at or, or Tim? Where are they? They meet on Wednesday nights, right? Uh, in the same neighborhood. This worked out really good. Like I said, Sunday nights. I don't know what you heard. Uh, they meet on Sunday. So they'll meet tonight and uh, they, the same neighborhood. Right. <laughs> so they'll meet tonight. Uh, the high school at Kitty's house, the middle school at the MacGyver's house, and they, live in the, and they live in the same neighborhood. So you want to sign up there. If you want to sign up to help, that's there. If you want to just, if you're a student, you want to be a part of it, that's there too. Tim? <clears throat> Did you guys all hear that? Parents, we need your emails so we can spam you. We just, we just need that. Uh, one of the foundational parts of Impact Church is absolutely we are going to be a house of prayer. We're going to be, before we even started the service today, there's a group that met, and they go all week long, but they met and they prayed for this service today. Uh, as we get going, it's not going to be too much longer. You know me. I'm an evangelist at heart, so I'm going to be giving the gospel. So I don't want that to fall on saved ears. So we need to start bringing lost people here too. So Impact Prayer Group, as many of you as possible. We've got worship and production right here in the obvious place where worship and production was taking place. Children's ministry, they, they went all out, kind of have a tent. They've been living because they really, really want you to stop there and serve. We've got Impact Security and uh, greeters and Fit Team and all the rest. So I'm going to close with some prayer. Please stop by a booth before you leave and stay as long as you want. And hopefully we'll see you all and your friends next week. Father, thank you for what you're doing here, Lord. Thank you for the faith and the big hearts, Lord. And <clears throat> God, thank you for our word. Help us to see, God, your, your word is not a, a, a mysterious book that we're supposed to spend our lives unlocking the secrets of, Lord. And I'm amazed at how simple you made it, but then saddened by how we look at it and we try to complicate it. Father, we just need to find out where you're already moving, what your purposes are, and join you there. And then we'll do great, great things to lift high your name. And that's what we want to do. That's how we'll make an impact. Uh, and that's how we'll bring glory to you. And we pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us.